The Lord be with you. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Pound for pound, variations on the unquenchable fire sermon have proved among some of the most effective motivational tools. Preachers have built entire careers around it, actually. Bums in the seats, coins in the coffer. How many professing Christians in history heard the message, walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, and found Jesus? Not so much because of their great spiritual hunger, or because they had any particular attraction to a life of faith, but because the prospects of being burned in unquenchable fire, well, that sounded like something to avoid. The thing is, though, what sort of life does a thing like that invite us to? I grew up in a church that put a lot of stock in the evangelical rapture hysteria. Those were crazy days. Sermons and movies and books about the end of days and the last great sorting and sifting of the human race. The faithful taken up to heaven And the rest, well, they're left behind. There was a stretch of time when I was pretty young, when in the middle of the night, I would sneak down the hall. I wanted to make sure that my parents were still in the house. I needed some assurance that even if I was going to be left behind, at least I'd survived another day. Funny thing, I really didn't ever factor in the possibility that maybe mom and dad were going to be left behind too. That's because they're very devout people. Very, very devout. Luke's gospel tells us the people gathered there on the banks of the Jordan River and they were filled with expectation, questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah. And John answered with what would turn out to be his final sermon. Are you kidding me? John says, I'm just the warm-up. The real show is about to start. And you better believe me when I say this next guy is the real deal. I'm a bit player. I'm a pawn. I'm splashing water of repentance on people. But this next guy, Holy Spirit and fire are his thing. And in the great harvest of humanity, the powerful one is bringing his pitchfork and he's throwing great forkfuls of wheat into the air and the holy wind blows all around it and the prize wheat heads for the granary. That useless chaff, though, burned with unquenchable fire. Burned with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. A lot of theological weight hangs on the question, how is this great harvest of judgment and fire, winnowing fork and threshing floor, how exactly is this good news for the people? 
John's poetic imagery is a vivid portrayal of our world. A profound beauty, fragile and alive. It's found a field with and intermingled with unspeakable horrors and terrible waste. The thought of the chaff of the human race being burned away on a certain level sounds pretty good. Even with our limited view of reality, each of us can call to mind our own list of terrible outcomes and grave injustices, tragic consequences, squandered resources, sometimes terrible, calculated, and cruel, so often careless, thoughtless, and cliched. Once you start writing a list like this, it's pretty hard to stop. I think that's part of the reason so many of us like movies about cowboys or gangsters. There is that moment in the film where it feels kind of great to watch the sheriff ride into town with six-gun justice and steely determination blasting away at the bad guys. And maybe even in that last scene when he throws a lantern into the barn where the outlaws are hiding out, he could quote some scripture. Stare off into the distance and say, The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Actually, then, that guy starts to look a lot like the bad guy. Clint Eastwood shows us this in his classic film, The Unforgiven. This is a tricky business that can turn ugly in a hurry when we make that list and decide what burns If you've ever watched the animated comedy Futurama, maybe you remember the character Robot Santa. Any Robot Santa fans in the house? A thousand years in the future, a company constructs a Robot Santa. And he's programmed to keep a naughty list and a nice list. And he delivers presents accordingly. But due to a programming error, robot standards are set way too high And he deems everybody naughty. Christmas is transformed from a time of joy and celebration to a season of fear and suffering because Robot Santa doesn't bring gifts anymore. He rains terror and judgment on everyone. Robot Santa has a point. Sometimes, oftentimes, Christians have been tempted to talk about this sort of scripture as though it's possible to form little communities of goodness and light. Wholesome places, rich with the wheat of righteousness. The chaff for the fire is a problem for other people. Wicked, wicked people. Not our people. Other people. Not us. Sounds... So silly to say it like that, though, doesn't it? If we're honest, we know the darkness in our own hearts, the failings of our communities. What a terrible folly to suppose otherwise. Thank God for the gift of a community that values confession. No wonder so many Christians through the ages, though, in the quiet of their own hearts, have lived in the abiding fear, the fear that maybe... The thing they did or the prayer they said or the church they attend didn't quite cut it. I'm sorry if that's been your story. 
Our desire to see God's justice brought to earth and the problem of our complicity with the pain of the world has been the source of so many theological debates. These are challenging passages. When we read these scriptures, we are filled with expectation and questioning in our hearts. John might show us the way, but our aim is to behold Jesus, Christ in the world. In the Gospels, we catch glimpses of God's answer to these difficult questions. Luke takes two verses interrupting the flow of his story to finally take the spotlight off of John. John's time is over. His work is done. The wild prophet is thrown in prison, caged by a wicked king. So what does it finally look like when this powerful one that John talks about finally shows up and takes the stage? What does Jesus do? Is he carrying his winnowing fork? If you've noticed, Jesus actually doesn't say a word in this whole passage, but what he does next speaks well enough. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, beloved. With you I am well pleased. Jesus got in line. Here's the good news we're actually looking for. Jesus joined the, the queue with the scared and questioning crowd, with the sinful and the terrified folks, with the repentant people, the questioning people. Jesus kicks off his ministry in such an astonishing way. Something John sure didn't see coming. Jesus gets in line with the unwashed and unrighteous. And he is baptized along with them. That messy crowd of baptism candidates, people awash with the grime and the suffering of our troubled world, Jesus surrounded himself with those people. People with beautiful possibilities. Humans with tragic flaws. And then the Holy One, Jesus, he takes part in that same humble ritual in those same muddy waters. A practice acknowledging our deep desire to be made right with our Maker. Amid so much struggle and pain, so so much systemic evil and suffering, Jesus didn't stand aloof. He didn't walk up to John and take over the baptizing duties. Jesus got in line with the rest of us. That long, long line of hopeful, damaged humans offering himself to the same waters of baptism, joining the crowd of the human race. What does it look like when Jesus shows up? He gets down in there with us. Christ in the world contends with the beauty and the ugliness of the world, fully aware of the ways that we are enmeshed in it, wrapped up in it, wheat and chaff, Never in denial about it or glossing over it. Naming the challenges we face. The struggles we face being human. In the baptism of Jesus, we see glimpses of the ways Jesus' ministry would take shape. 
hanging out with all sorts of flawed and troubled people, healing and blessing the most unlikely characters, living and dying in our violent and unfair world. On a day like today, maybe you remember your own baptism. Or maybe you're thinking about getting in line and being baptized yourself. Baptism is a milestone for us, a marked event, a time and a place, a way to name God's enduring grace in our lives. Witnessed and celebrated by a gathering of hopeful souls cheering you on. In baptism, we also get in line with that same messy crowd of human history. We stand in solidarity with a troubled human race, and together we ask for God's mercy, seeking the Spirit of, in our lives, praying prayers of gratitude as we join in worship with the renewed people of God, submitting ourselves to the same waters as our Lord Jesus. In the final reckoning of things, I don't exactly know how God will once and for all contend with the troubling problem of the wheat and chaff of humanity. Such things are beyond our wildest imagination. Wonders from a God who delights in surprising us. And really, doesn't that beat the unquenchable fire sermon any day of the week? Because of Christ, we see God in the thick of it with us. God is in the world with us. Not a bystander or an overseer, not a distant observer or a dabbler. Jesus is there in the mix with the human race. Friends, this is the shape of our hope. Good news for the people. Thanks be to God.